Okay, hello, this is Mike Levin, and this is Swampcast. Today is January 4th, 2006. It's a Wednesday, and today we have Bruce Eckel, author of many books, uh, the most recent of which is Thinking in Java 4th Edition. Hey, Bruce, how are you doing? Hey, Mike. How's the weather there? The weather is beautiful. Uh, how, about okay. the, how about with you? In Redmond, it is surprisingly uh, mostly overcast. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, um, yes, actually the book is, uh, I'm just putting in details. The, I did the last of the tech edits yesterday. I I had this wonderful technical editor, the best I've ever had. Oh, boy. Um and uh, he's in Budapest, and uh, so he helped me through all of these, some of them very difficult tech edits, and uh, got the last of them in, and now I'm just taking care of, you know, little bits and pieces, but um, basically we're, yes, I'm about to uh, be able to say that the document is totally done. Fantastic. Yeah, it's been over a year and a half. This This project has been huge because... Um, the new version of Java, Java, well, J2SE5, but actually Java 6 does not appear to have any really significant changes. It, the, the irony is that they finally stopped doing point releases for big changes. Uh-huh. And then it, for, for Java 5, and then Java 6 is really, as far as I can tell, looks like a point release. So, But, hey, I'm not complaining. There you go. I'm totally happy with that. Uh, the idea of having to, to go around this again for, in fact, I'm hoping that Dolphin doesn't add any significant changes either. I, they, they could just do point releases from now on, and and uh, I'd be happy. Well, I guess uh, this this huge, you know. I guess the you, first you guess question everyone would ask is, when when can we expect to, uh, to see the book on the bookshelves? Um, that will be, uh, it looks like February. So, um, I mean, it's a, because I do camera-ready production and my cover designer does, you know, everything ready. I mean, basically, once the electronic version is done, it can go directly to press. That's amazing. And so it's just a matter of press scheduling at this point because we've, we've got the, you know, the document is in place. So... Um, yeah, it looks like uh, it looks like early February. So, and I have to be done with it because I've got a couple of consulting jobs coming up, and so I have to spend time on those. Oh, great! Well, you know, I actually got a few questions here uh, from mm-hmm. uh, readers of the blog. Uh, one from a gentleman by the name of Luis Colorado, who asked. Some people complain about having so many changes made to the Java language. Should Java stabilize or keep being upgraded, maybe more aggressively? Hmm. Oh, you know that's oh that that's that's sort of a perennial question. I mean, it's really interesting to see a language, for example, like Python, which predates Java. Python was around before Java showed up, and if anything, in the last few years, it has been being changed more aggressively. 
Um, but Python is more of a grassroots kind of a project. Right. And Java has always had large companies involved, and they tend to exert a lot of conservative pressures for for good reason. And I would observe that the only reason that we had the really significant changes in J2SE5 is because of the pressures exerted on the other end by, by Microsoft and C-sharp. Because if you look at J2SE5, um, significant number of the really big changes are basically responses to features in C-sharp. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you look at generics and annotations and actually some of the things like the for each loop and, um, you know, the things along those lines. Well, you, you can see it showed up in C-sharp first and it seemed like that lit a fire under the sun. And so they ended up adding those features. So yeah, there, I mean, I guess with any language or I guess programming project in general, you've got these competing forces. Right. And you have to you have to evaluate the forces and see what makes sense. And I think what ends up, you know, the answer, even though we always like to think that we live in this digital world and there's always a uh, up or down answer. I mean, the answer is 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 actually that it depends on the situation. You know, you could say, for example, while I'm talking about Java and Python, well, one of them is statically typed and one of them is dynamically typed, and people have made good arguments for both approaches. And I've had the experience where, gosh, you know, I, when I did the internship uh, project years ago, which I think you. You w actually met some of the interns, I believe. That's um, right. So when I did that, you know, that was a situation where they were too inexperienced in general and more static typing or more some sort of checking would have been better. And so that, that kind of, you know, made me realize that, uh, it, it, again, depends on who you are. Mm -hmm. So, so and, and, I, and I would say the answer to the question taking the roundabout way of getting there, is that um, I don't know that it matters what we say. Because we could say, well, you know, I'd like to see in Java more of the features that the nice language has been putting in. Although I'm not sure what that guy's been doing. I mean, I think he's still finishing his PhD in France or something, and I think he may have gotten a little distracted because I haven't seen much coming out of that lately. But anyway, that language has some really good ideas. But to change Java to make it more like that, I'm guessing won't happen. And I would also suggest that, uh, even though there's a lot, I mean, I always get this when I when I make, you know, when, when I first said that uh, checked exceptions uh, maybe were more trouble than they worth, were worth, there was a huge backlash, and uh, and I think now there's been a lot more acceptance of that idea. So um, when I have said that generics are too complex. Um, there was, there's a lot of argument against. Oh, it seems simple enough to me, but I'm going to, I'm going to argue that because generics are as complex as they are, and in C++, 
we have the same argument, which is that, well, there will be the creators of classes and the consumers of classes. Right. And the consumers don't need to be as smart as the creators. And so, the you know, maybe templates and, and some of these other language features can be more complicated, and it's okay. But <clears throat> But the problem is that, in reality, people do need to understand everything about it, you know, at some point, more than you expect. And it's the same with generics. I mean, initially, I thought, okay, well, maybe generics can be something that will, um, you know, fit this model where, where, okay, well, we've got these generic collections and everybody can just consume them. But the problem is, uh, once I understood the feature well enough, and it took a great deal of struggle to do that, I began finding lots of other places where I could use it. And um, and it's not it's not very easy to apply. In fact, uh, I would go as far as to say that C++ templates are very often easier to apply than Java generics. So so the the problem is you will want. To, I mean, it's a general purpose feature, and once you understand the basic idea, you will want to make more generic code. You you won't just want. So you'll end up wanting to write generic code. And you'll run into those things, and I think there will probably be a backlash. I mean, one of the authors of the uh, Java, I think it's the Java programming language, anyway, Ken Arnold, he posted a blog on Artima where he basically said, okay, look, I just, you know, finished working on the, the definition book for Java, the Java programming language book, and um, generics are too hard. <laughs> and Ken Arnold, he's a smart guy, and he's been around for a long time doing a lot of stuff. So uh, anyway, because of that, I think that there will be a lot of resistance to adding big language features. In addition, we now have annotations, which are kind of a hook. In fact, I think you could argue that, that they, they are a hook that allows people to tack on new language features without modifying the language. And so that may, that may change things. I mean, we don't know how well that'll work, but um, in terms of you know, inventing new languages from, from Java using annotations, but, um, but it, it is at least, uh, it could relieve the pressure for people wanting to do that. But as far as the fundamental language goes, I don't think you can make too many more changes, nothing on the scale of, of Java 5 without um, just uh, causing havoc. <laughs> and, and there's, you know, there's too many entrenched users to be able to do that. It's, uh, somebody joked that now that Java 6 is coming out, I think in the summertime, that uh, now most companies will be two revisions behind the curve because adopting Java 5 is a huge change. <laughs> so, but fortunately, 6 isn't really that big of a difference. So I hope that answered that one. Well, we have another question here. Uh, is C Sharp or .NET a real menace for the Java platform? <clears throat> you know, um, gosh. Well, I guess the answer is, to continue my wishy-washiness, yes and no. Um, it, Java has basically, even though it tried to be all things to all people, it's basically made its um, 
base in web applications. And so we've ended up with um, the web is mostly built on, you know, things like Linux boxes and Perl and Apache and PHP and Python and, and Java. You know, especially when you start scaling up to bigger things, people tend to be using Java. And Microsoft is certainly wanting to make inroads in that area, and they've got, uh, well, uh, uh, I have a friend who creates products that only work under Windows, and so he, he knows a lot about Windows, and he's looking into using ASP.NET, which is basically you write C-sharp apps, and it, they run on the server and d deliver net apps. Um, so Microsoft will continue clearly to try and uh, work into that space because you know it's the server space. I, th I mean, I think Java has a very good. Uh, it's it's very strongly entrenched there. On the other hand, I, I'd have to say if I were, if I had made the decision to write a desktop application for Windows say, okay, I'm not going to worry about the Mac, I'm not going to worry about Linux, I'll just say, all right, you know, my, most of my customers are going to be under Windows, and so um, I'll just say, tech with it, I'll write for Windows. I would have a hard time not using C Sharp and .NET. I mean, that seems like the most logical choice and the easiest way to go, and you're probably going to be the most productive, and there's actually uh, Python for .NET, uh, is, uh, it's called Iron Python. They've just put out the 1.0 beta, so it's it's about ready to be released. So, I mean, the tools for .NET, if you could say you were just going to run under Windows, you know, it's hard to it's hard to argue that that Microsoft still owns the desktop, and um, it's, I mean, it's hard to argue against that. And I mean, people have been pointing out that Linux is still too hard for the average person. All that we hope will change eventually. But even then, um, I don't know. Um, you know, Java on the desktop, considering how long it's been around, hasn't made that many. Um, you know, hasn't made the kind of inroads that Sun had hoped. Mm -hmm. So, and and Microsoft is still, you know, holding tight there. And as far as applets go, I don't know. You could, you could even. You see applets every now and then, and so who knows? Maybe they're making a comeback. But in the meantime, I'd say Flash is making far more. I mean, it's it's just been building up steam over years, and with the new Flex stuff. And somebody even pointed out that there are I at least two products where you can write applications using C Sharp and uh, Windows Forms and translate them automatically into Flash apps. And so if you want to make an application you know, that's really a client server application with, with a significant client side without forcing people to download the, the Java virtual machine, which apparently there's been great resistance over the years to downloading the know, 10 megabytes and going through the install process, whereas the Flash player just works. And, you know, and I think those things are important. You know, that's why, uh, that's why I think even though Ajax is interesting, it, it, it's really just, oh, we finally figured out how we can use the stuff that we want, that we really needed in 
just for basic web stuff. You know, we figured out, okay, there's a common subset of JavaScript that we can use across all platforms. And there's a way to communicate back and forth between the server without having to reload the page every time, et cetera. Well, gee, that's great. But that would have been great when the web first came out. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, okay, you know, it took brains at Google to, to solve the problem and do interesting things with it. It still it seems to me like we're seeing kind of already the limits of what... Um, what that can do, what what AJAX and and DTML is is capable of, really impressive, but it took Google to pull it off, and so it's like, well, we want something that makes web programming easier for the masses, and you know, Java. Java is okay on the server. Unfortunately, the whole EJB debacle, um, I think, has turned a lot of people off on, on some of those things. Although EJB3 is very, very interesting, really cleaned up. In fact, you could argue that it's something entirely different than EJBs based on the history. And we've got, you know, struts and hibernate, or spring and hibernate, and, you know, all those kinds of things that, that tend to make, tend to, tend to make it a lot easier. And then, you know, there's, there's the whole, Ruby on Rails phenomenon, and then the in the Python community, there's the uh, uh, well, it's Turbo Gear seems to be continuing to gain traction, and Django, and, and all those way too many frameworks. Although the, the the one that seems to be really kind of following, in some sense, the the Ruby approach is Turbo Gears by by bringing together a bunch of uh, sort of best of breed pieces and, and automating the process. And so it's kind of a backlash to a lot of things that we've had. It's like we just want to, you know, do relatively simple web apps. Um, so, 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 you know, I don't think, I don't think menace is the right word. I think it's the first time it's really had competition. And the reason that J2SE5 happened, and there's some really good things that happened in J2SE5, is because of C-sharp and .NET. So I wouldn't call it a menace at all. In fact, I was starting to feel like Java had become moribund because, and I think maybe the reason is because there wasn't competition. And, uh, and when Microsoft stepped up to the plate, now there's competition, and that forces Java to try and be better. So... So not a menace, no, a, a good thing. Well, you've mentioned to me that you've been uh, doing a little more consulting recently. Mm -hmm. Have you run into more .NET projects or more Java projects? Uh, what, what well, encountering that's, yeah, that's probably not a good uh, metric because, um, you know, a lot of people know me for Java and C++ because that's what I primarily publish books in. Right. So... Um, so they're they're not necessarily going to be asking so much about C sharp. I mean, you know, people come to you for the things that you know. Mostly, what I have seen, which is interesting, and I guess it's really interesting because, all right, I got immersed in objects. <laughs> uh, well, it's frightening to think about it, but uh, I think we can safely say 20 years ago. <laughs> And so, so I've been thinking about and thinking in objects for that period of time. And of course, it's not fair to say the whole time because there was a fair amount of, you know, wandering around, bumping into walls, being confused about objects. 
But I eventually got over that and now feel like, okay, I'm getting a pretty decent grasp on it. And I've been, of course, writing about it the whole time, trying to make it clear to people. But a lot of what I find people still need help on is, um, you know, object design. And, and I, I think part of that is that the, there, there's understanding what objects are and seeing, okay, well, here's an example or here are several examples of what could be considered uh, good object-oriented design. It's probably why Design Patterns was such a popular book because people would look at these things and say, uh, okay, wow, that's, uh, I, I can see why objects are valuable based on this design pattern. But then the actual process of saying, well, I have this problem I want to solve. How does that translate into objects? Is something that, obviously, if you look at the number of books we have, people have been throwing themselves at that problem many, many times. And the folks who are in the trenches doing the actual design and building, it's still not simple enough for them. And so uh, one of the things that has been kind of in the forefront, and it seems like it's what's been helping clients, is a kind of simplified, direct way of doing object-oriented design. So that seems to be, you know, regardless of whether you were working with uh, .NET or Java or C++ or actually, you know, Python or, or Ruby or, or you know, whatever object-oriented language you, you are using. It still comes down to, on, at least on a higher level, I mean, once you get down into the language details, you know, this is why the Gang of Four book had to be translated, because it's primarily C++-ish. And it, often the designs are skewed by the nature of, of, in fact, it was old C++ that they were using. They weren't using templates and, and the like. So um, it, it, I mean, in the end, that's what it kind of comes down to, is um, it's, it tends to be the struggling point that people are having is how do we build object-oriented to systems rather than how do we, well, a lot of times people can figure out how to use the language, they can pick up a book, um, drill into these things, but, uh, but figuring out how to, to actually come up with the object-oriented design seems to be what most people are asking about. Now jumping into a project at the very beginning is, uh, is a very enjoyable thing for a lot of us, but how do you find uh, jumping into the middle of a project, especially a project that has a, a significant problem? Well, that's actually, yeah, I mean what you're talking about, the green fields approach, um, is nice because well, the green fields from an architectural standpoint, you don't have to deal with an existing building. You can just say, all right, we've got this nice flat field. We can put whatever building we want on it and start from scratch. That actually has its challenges as well because you can, you know, the, you can get into analysis paralysis, which is probably the most common thing to happen is people, people feel like, okay, the sky's the limit. The world is open, my oyster, so... They end up trying to create the, the perfect system and end up just getting gridlocked and spending way too long doing it. So, so it isn't, you know, it seems like it's the ideal thing, but it isn't always. But yes, more common is 
uh, we're in trouble, and we need we need some kind of help to get out. Or even better is that we we would like a checkup, a verification. It's almost like instead of uh, finding bugs after the fact, building in unit tests. So if you if you call in a consultant to to kind of do an evaluation of your project and look for issues rather than waiting for the issues to cause you trouble later. That's good. But the, what always sounds like the worst situation is going into the middle of a project that's got problems and trying to figure it out and trying to, well, to imagine that what you're trying to do is solve it. And the reason that I find that interesting is because, yes, it is a great challenge. And it's a challenge to oneself as a consultant because you have to realize that you may not be able to you know, fix things, but more, it's more interesting to try and see, well, what, uh, what positive effect can you have given all of the constraints that are in place. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I have often found that constraints oddly, well, it's, it's kind of weird to say, but constraints can be liberating. Because once you see, okay, well, you know, this aspect is fixed, this is fixed, what can we do within the, the space that we have available? Um, I suppose the liberation comes from the fact that you don't have to make certain decisions and you can say, all right, we know what our constraints are, what can we make happen? And that actually is a surprisingly interesting process, even though it, um, it is challenging because you, you know, you'd like to come in and be Superman and fix everything. But that's, you know, I don't know if that's ever possible to happen. You know, you, you, you'd have to, you'd have to probably be Superman to do that and, and cause a lot of destruction and, um, and, and probably what you'd fix you know, wouldn't be what you soup. The, the, the point is it's, it's very interesting to come in and evaluate a situation, see how it's gotten where it's gotten, see what can be done to improve things and in a sense let go of the sense that you are going to um, be able to, to fix it or fix everything, but instead you can contribute something. You can make a difference. Well, we have another question here. Uh, C Sharp is going to incorporate SQL and XML in the language, or maybe that already happened, he says. That would increment tremendously the productivity of business developers, but on the other hand, it may be considered as syntactic sugar. Should Java do the same? Mm. Yeah, I think he probably means increase tremendously. But in any event, um, yes, if I understand correctly, in C Sharp 2.0, they have direct language support for SQL and XML. And so, in other words, instead of having to, well, Basically, uh, the support is for driving SQL databases and for reading and writing XML. So that is, you don't have to do it directly. So I, my understanding is that you can have, 
you know, objects and you can store them and they get stored as um, SQL or perhaps translated into XML. I don't know the full details of it. And I think, it's funny, I went through this huge long arc myself when I, long, long ago, when I first started programming and using computers, you know, back in the K-Pro CPM days, etc. I remember what we thought of as database programmers were people who used DBase. Uh, this, you know, and some people haven't even heard of DBase, I suspect. Anyway, and so all you were doing is creating these little scripts that would store data and retrieve it and everything. And it seemed like, I mean, at the time I thought, well, that's databases, that's not real programming. And it took, I don't know, an evolution process of many years for me to finally realize, no, database programming is part of the programming problem. It is, it is an aspect of it. You, you could just look at, well, storing and retrieving data, or, or even you could think of it as, as the general process of I.O. You've got a program. There are times when you want to move your information out of the program and get information back in. So I.O. is really what, what it's about, getting outside of your box and pulling things from outside of your box back into the box. Well, the solution we've come up with to, to do that has, has been uh, databases and now XML. I mean, XML is a way to, to move data around outside of the box of your program. So uh, both, both ways are the way to do that. And so it's really just part of the general programming problem. And so the fact that C Sharp has, in a sense, acknowledged that and said, all right, if it's part of the general programming problem, let's make it easy, or at least let's hope that's what they did. You know, I, I've only skimmed the syntax of that, and so I'm not sure exactly what it looks like. But um, um, I think that's an important, I, I mean, it's all part of the process of abstraction. and We want to be able to move ourselves away from the low-level details. I started in assembly language. I started knowing, the, you know, my, my first real significant exposure to computers came from electrical engineering when we learned about gates and adders and, you know, we basically built a, you know, we didn't build a CPU in silicon, but we, we, you know, went through all the processes of a CPU. So somewhere back there in the musty reaches of my brain, I know how the clock cycles work to make a CPU work. And so, but, Fortunately, and that comes in handy sometimes, but fortunately, I'm able to instead think about things at a higher level. And so I would say, hey, the, the kind of general I.O. problem that includes uh, talking to databases and communicating with other systems using XML, um, we ideally should have, I mean, that... You know, the whole XML thing went way overboard, and people started saying, well, let's do everything with XML. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, it became a worldview. Well, it, you know, really what XML is is a standard way for systems to talk to each other, which has the lovely side effect that if something goes wrong, a human can look at it and figure out what's going on, rather than some of the antiquated systems where you had... Uh, somebody who was, I mean, I mean, a system that would, you know, write it in, in their own binary format, and so only people who understood that binary format could, could
could read it. And so, you know, big step forward, part of the abstraction process. But the next step is to move up a level and say, um, all right, let's, let's be able to, instead of having to know all the characters, let's be able to just wave our hands and say, store that in a database, retrieve it from a database, send that to another system using XML, receive it from another system using XML, but don't bother me with the details. In the same way, we need to solve the concurrency problem, especially since we've got multi-core you know, multi chips are coming down the pike. Right. And we need to be able to, to deal with that problem, and programmers need to be able to understand it. And I don't think threads, in, in the, the old traditional sense, are, are going to solve that problem. So. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So what about um, the hands-on Java CD and uh, the related, the related uh, work there? Do you, uh, do you plan on uh, reproducing that? Well, okay, so what happened in the last edition was that we, we did put a CD in the book, and that, would, that included a number of additional things, useful things, the, the Chuck Allison's thinking in C that I commissioned him to do to kind of bring people up to speed. Um, and so a number of things changed. One of the problems was that the publisher had a heck of a time with the uh, CD, and a whole bunch of them were broken. And I don't ever want to go through that experience again. <laughs> right. I've just got too many people saying, my CD's broken. What do I do? So, um, so there's no CD in this edition of the book. But the stuff that, by and large, the important stuff that was on that CD, like with the, the, the biggest thing, which people sometimes need help getting up the curve on, which is why Chuck did the thinking in C, which is basically a, teaches you the, the core C syntax that you need to understand both C++ and Java. That I'm planning on turning into a uh, flash um, downloadable flash presentation. So people will just be able to grab that and download it, and anybody can do that. That'll just be on the website. When? Well, the next few months. So when the consulting stuff, um, when the consulting stuff calms down and the, uh, you know, the, the book is out and everything, um, all of that is, is basically my next project. <coughs> so, and, and then the source code, you, you know, download and all that. So, so that stuff will be there. The CDs themselves will also be in Flash because I've had too much trouble trying to work with the other formats over the years. So I just want something that works without, um, without people having any trouble. And there will be two CDs this time because at some point I realized the book, which is 1,500 pages long. Oh, boy. It's, yes, it's huge. Um, so, and this is even after I had to tear a chapter out, and I tore other material out to get the book down. And I mean, I tried to trim my writing, and you know, as much as I could, I tried to keep it terse. But there's just a lot. I mean, the the concurrency chapter probably could have been a book on its own, mm -hmm. and uh, the generics chapter is big because I could not find coverage, any sort of av adequate coverage of generics anywhere. So anyway, the book is big. Um, and then there's new features. So, it, so um, it's. But but the other thing I realized at some point is that because when I started teaching Java, I would be able to cover by and large cover it in a week. 
And at some point, I had a customer who said, well, just give us the basics. And I gave him the basics, and I discovered we all had a pretty good time. It, it didn't have this, this tension that had developed over time, which was this forced march trying to, to cover everything in Java and people you know, having their brain overload happening. And uh, so I realized, oh, you know, this is really a two-week course now. There's introductory Java and there's intermediate Java. And so there will be the same with the CDs. There will be the, the hands-on Java CD will be the introductory CD and cover about half the book. And then there's an intermediate thinking in Java CD, which is a completely separate product, which will cover the, um, the more advanced chapters. And um, both of them, yeah, they, they'll be too big. I mean, it's, it's going to be. And the nice thing about the CD is that I'm not limited like I am in a class. I can talk about things for as long as they need to be talked about. So um, there will be yeah, a lot of material on this. And it's not going to be me reading the book or anything. It'll be a different take on the material. The examples will be taken from the book. But, um, but it'll be to, yeah, I, just, I mean, I, I, over the years, a lot of people have gotten a lot of value out of these. Uh, that's what they've told me. So anyway, all of this will be done in Flash so that it'll work on any platform. And I won't have to worry about it not working on platforms. So that'll be a big relief. So I've noticed, uh, and I guess the, uh, a lot of people in the, uh, the blogosphere have noticed that you've moved your blog to Artima, and you're having quite a good time there. Um, that was about a year, I think it was a year ago. Yeah, about a year yeah. ago. Yeah, yes. Um, yeah, I, well, it's, uh, I think it's a, a nice community, and um, Bill tends to monitor it for trolling. And it seems like <clears throat> we, in the, you know, for some reason, the, the battles over languages, I, I guess it's a personal thing and you get an emotional investment. And so it's hard to, um, it, it's hard to, to, to have really good perspective on, on a language that you've become personally invested in or, or maybe it's your first language or whatever. So, so it's, Anyway, when I'm able to write about these things on our team, it seems more um, civilized. Probably not as civilized as I like, and I'm sure I'm still partly to blame for that. You know, I I will sometimes be, I, I I don't like to be too guarded. I tend to be much more guarded in the when I'm writing a book, you know, because I. I just think about it differently. So I like to be able to let my guard down a little bit when I'm writing a weblog, and I think that's part of you know why they work. But it also tends to sometimes raise people's hackles when I challenge their uh, their assumptions or mine. I mean, the other nice thing about the the weblog is that you can put stuff up that maybe you don't know is right or wrong. And you can kind of tr test the waters, and maybe somebody will come along and give you some really good insights. In the meantime, you sometimes will have to suffer many of the slings and arrows. But um, but I kind of started to realize, well, you know, that happens. And um, for the value that you get from the occasional good comment, which seems to happen more on Artima, um, it's worth it. My my idea of an ideal situation would be one where 
there would be more oh what's the word Dec well I don't, I don't know if decorum is the right word that sounds quite conservative but but more um I don't know, being able to focus on the subjects a little bit more and and uh, and make it less okay to just say, no, you're wrong. I don't think that's true and not back yourself up, you know. I mean, because what I'm really looking for is when people say, um, I like this feature or no, this is better than that, is to be able to sh to actually sit down and show me. And of course, that takes more work. It's much easier to just say, no, you're wrong. And not and not really back yourself up or you know start calling names or something like that, which I just find. Of course, I don't like first-person shooter games either, so maybe I'm not uh, maybe I'm not emotionally you know con configured to work on the internet. I, I played this. You have to find this game. It's called. Uh, it's from the Czech Republic. It's called Samorost. S A M O R O S T. Right. And so I think it's www.samaras2.com. Mm -hmm. okay. And if you go to that, there's there's uh, if if you if you start out by going to that website and then and then putting a forward slash samaras1, you will find this lovely little flash game with this little character who's who's you know floating through space on an asteroid of some kind. Anyway, you know you can. <laughs> I don't have kids, but you, you know, I would, I, I would be completely comfortable sitting with a kid with this. And yet, as an adult, I find it totally entertaining because it's just so charming. And nobody's shooting, nobody's dying, nobody's. It's just an odd little world, and um, and I like that. And so, you know, and I like the mist. I found interesting, and you know, those sorts of things. I, I so. So maybe maybe it's just the the nature of the first person shooter, or maybe the um, what is that syndrome that that programmers tend to have more than most um, um, makes them really smart, but also kind of aggressive. Um, it's a mild form of ADD. Um, somebody will know. But anyway, you know, we, it, it 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 makes it makes for good programmers, but it makes them a little more aggressive. And so maybe that's the reason why these web conversations get the way they do. But Every once in a while, there are some real gems, and you you get some insight. I just well, let's anyway. see. We're coming up on about uh, forty minutes of recording or so, and about mm -hmm. ten meg. Um, we had a couple of questions about reading lists and trends. If you could if you could wrap it up by talking about what blogs you're reading. Uh, perhaps what mm. books you find interesting and, and interesting trends to keep an eye on and uh, uh, maybe we'll, we'll call it call it a day with that mm. okay well let's see what weblogs do I read um, mostly I always look at Elliot Rusty Harold's Cafe Olay he does a really good job of, of kind of filtering things and, and He's he's kind of like my own personal bot that goes out and looks for stuff that I might find interesting. So he's very helpful. Um, I recently discovered a site called Dig D I G G, which um, happens to tend to be more programming programming oriented. 
Uh, I think Delicious has programming stuff that occasionally is interesting. And I, I, I mean, you can you can stick in URLs to, to to find like more specific stuff. Like you want to stick to programming. Um, Let's see. Is there anything else that's um, that's particularly interesting? No, I just no. I, I'd say those are. I, I well, one thing I'll I'll just slide aside, which is the um, the aggregators. I have not really had. I, I started trying to use aggregators, and what I discovered is that they were constantly interrupting me with things, mm -hmm. and also the fact that they don't show you the page as you want to see it. So I've sort of mostly started using the bookmarks in um, Firefox because you can have a you can have a sub folder of bookmarks and you can open them all at once and that that doesn't work perfectly because it's showing me sites that haven't changed but but in general I find I like that better than the aggregators which were just really noisy and I don't know they, they I, Maybe they'll get. I hope they'll get better. Interesting. So, yeah, yeah, and then of course, maybe you've had different experiences or you've delved into them. But my initial, my initial reaction to the aggregator was that I didn't want something constantly interrupting me. Um, right. I, I, you need things to be quieter. Um, let's see, books that I'm reading. I'm actually finally getting around to reading the. Um, oh. What is it? The Psychology of Computer Programming, Gerald Weinberg's work. I'm, I'm trying to get through all of his stuff. It's it's really weird that I write these enormous books, and yet I have a hard time reading technical stuff. I, I always end up reading novels. Um, Accelerando, yes, by um, Charles... Oh, well, anyway, if you look up Accelerando, um, that book is quite interesting. That's definitely a, a mind-bending one. Um, and I'm looking at PHP books now because PHP 5 is really an interesting combination of lots of Java features and even some C++-isms. And I'm just I'm trying to make my website as simple as possible to maintain because uh, it's been getting in my way all the stuff that I've done in the past, and you know it's too complicated. It's I suppose part of the whole Web 2.0 movement is everybody's trying to simplify things now. So, and even uh, a couple of days, I'm going to a PHP meetup. I'm going to my first meetup uh -huh. um, here in um, the Seattle area with, with some other PHP folks, and I'm hoping that I can get them to uh, get me, you know, just get some ideas about how to jumpstart this process. So, um, and let's see, you were asking, well, then there was a third part of that question. You were saying books and websites that I'm reading. Uh, trends? Trends. Oh, trends to keep track of. Well, actually, you know, I suppose the biggest trend is the, the sort of reshifting of the whole web programming thing. And even though I, you know, the whole web 2.0, maybe Tim O'Reilly is a visionary about this again, but... Um, it seemed contrived, and yet there's something there. You know, maybe maybe he said, "Hey, things are changing. Let's call it Web 2.0 before we know what that really means." And we'll have a conference about it and everything, and you can hear some of the talks from the conference. And so there has been some backlash over the term, but it also seems to me that there is a fundamental shift going on in the way people are approaching the web. And you've got 
um, well, the, the, the attempt to return to client-side programming with Ajax and I think inevitably more successfully with Flash on the client side, with the, with the new Flash that allows you to do actual programming. And then on the server side, you have things like, you know, the whole thing that was sparked by Ruby on Rails and, and, the, and, um, and Hibernate and, and that kind of stuff to make it, which is essentially saying, hey, okay, we've been screwing around with the web for long enough. What are we really doing here? <clears throat> and somebody said, you know, it seems like 90% of the time we're just storing and retrieving data. It's, you know, a lot of time it seems like most of the deal is just a database problem. It's clearly more than that. But if it's that way 80 or 90% of the time, maybe we should make that really simple to do and work from there. So, so there is a there is a shift, and it also doesn't seem to do, you know, I mean, the whole SOAP thing, which was yet another thing that was going to be the greatest thing in the world, um, that seems to have, seems to be falling on its face. I mean, people have stopped talking about, which is what I always find amazing. You know, it's like Y2K. Do you remember Y2K? <laughs> Did you think the world was going to come? Well, there's no. You're a technologist. You didn't think the world was going to come to an end. I mean, there were people who were telling me, oh, anything with an embedded processor is going to go haywire. And, of course, I used to program embedded processors. And I know that many, many of them, you know, perhaps the majority of them, don't even know what time it is. So why should they care whether it's Y2K? No, you couldn't tell these people. They had heard some expert tell them that anything with an embedded processor. What I always find fascinating is where do those people go when the world doesn't end? <laughs> and, and so, for example, all the people who have said soap is the next, the next big thing, um, where did they go? Because they were just fanatically arguing for the, you know, oh, yeah, soap is going to be the great thing and it's wonderful and all that. And, you know, I'd look at it and scratch my head and say, wow, this seems like it's way more complicated than what, you know, it seems like um, uh, XML RPC is really all you need. And, and it seems like, you know, now we're starting to see service-oriented architectures. Of course, that could just be another uh, invented thing that goes nowhere. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm waiting to see on that one. Yeah, maybe that's the problem. Is it as you get older as a programmer, you you've been sucked into so many uh, wild schemes that you get more and more of the wait and see attitude, and somebody else has to go out on the front lines and get beat up and bloodied, and come back and say, nope, that one was wrong. Don't bother with it. You're, you're sitting back there going, whew, dodged another bullet. So. Uh, well, Bruce, it's been yes. great. Um, if if people want to contact you, um, I guess they can find your blog at Artima. Yes. Artima.com. And there are links on the website. Okay. So that would be uh, mindview.net. Mindview.net, yes. Or you can just go to bruceeckle.com. That works, too. You know, Or just look me up on Google. I mean, that's mostly what people do, I think, well, anymore. As always, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure. If you ever uh, decide to come down to the swamp here in Florida, mm -hmm. we've got the Orlando Java User Group that would love to have sure. you as a speaker. We've got the yes. Gainesville Java User Group and, and actually several others. Well, so you know, when I travel, um, I always like to, to speak to user groups and, you know, at bookstores and things like that. I mean, the publishers don't do speaking tours for computer books. But if I'm, if I'm already traveling someplace, I try and announce it as soon as I know so that people 
can get a chance to you know maybe put together a, a user group meeting or something and I, I definitely enjoy speaking to user groups. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. This has been Bruce Eckel on Swampcast. I'm Mike Levin, and we will talk to you guys soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you.